welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Al Anka of uh, Aurora Consulting, a principal here. Al, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Al, I um, had a chance to have you on the podcast uh, last uh, um, fall very briefly as part of a kind of melange of interviews at the Minnesota Council on Nonprofits Conference, uh, and you've been doing this work for a while. But I, I was so excited to see a post from you and Aurora about um, the idea of an evolution in logic models that I hadn't heard of before, and I wanted to talk very specifically about that. But before we dive into all those things, can you just um, introduce yourself and a little bit about the work that you do at Aurora? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I'm Al Anka. Um, I'm a principal consultant at Aurora Consulting uh, and owner here, um, and we're a small non uh, nonprofit consulting firm that works in Minneapolis. Um, we do a lot of um, uh, work across the sector locally. Um, and then we do a lot of work in informal education nationally. Um, so museums, zoos, uh, places like that, cultural institutions. Um, and our services are really focused on evaluation, strategic planning, uh, and organizational leadership development. And our favorite projects have a little bit of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It is great when you can combine all of the work. Yeah. Uh, but I do think one of the areas where many charities uh, um, don't embrace as much as I think some of us would like them to do is the evaluation end of things. How do we uh, know that we're what we're doing is good? And I've had other folks on the podcast uh, talking about these things, the Community Indicators Consortium folks and, uh, and others. Um, but I haven't really seen the framework that you um, wrote about a little while ago. So this is a, an evolution of some logic model theory. But before we get into some of the newer thoughts, could you just introduce the idea of what is a logic model and why should charities care mm -hmm. about that? Yeah. So um, logic models are something that uh, usually uh, come to the front of uh, someone's mind in a nonprofit when they're writing um, uh, a grant request. Um, and the reason why is because this is, this is the place where um, you most concisely and specifically have to describe what you're actually doing and what the impacts of the outcomes and impacts of it are going to be. Um, but a logic model is really just uh, is one type of tool that helps you describe your program theory. Um, and so uh, you have, you're doing something uh, in the world to make an impact. And a logic model is one type of way to help you think through how does that actually work? What do we expect um, will be the result of our actions? How do our actions work together um, in order to make that result? Uh, and other things you can think about. Uh, theory of change is, is another way to do that. Um, a theory of change is a, a part of a group of things called outcome chains. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff, uh, tools um, that you can use to really think through how does our program work. Um, and a logic model uh, is one of the most popular kinds. Um, and it, uh, I think it really came to prominence, especially because of uh, both the combination of funders um, wanting this kind of explanation and also because of the prominence of evaluation where you have to think through how are we going to get to the outcomes and what are those outcomes of our program. And I think important to differentiate right away the idea of uh, outcomes versus outputs. So mm -hmm. an awful lot of the typical nonprofit communication, especially to individual donors, might really be focused on um, the, those short-term outputs. Mm -hmm. We serve X number of meals to children after school. We um, reach you know X number of tutoring opportunities 
opportunities. We do what, um, and those things I think are important to talk about. But uh, the the first time I heard about this uh, many years ago now, uh, in the context of the the framework that the W. K. Kellogg Foundation was pushing out, was saying, towards what end? Why do we do these things? Because if if we're only ameliorating some local impacts. And then tomorrow is no different than today. We just have to ameliorate the same impacts. Is there a way that we could be making longer-term change? And how do we measure that? Um, so I think that many charities are in a position where they can do that. There are, of course, some who are not going to be looking for major long-term societal change. Um, I, I often hold up, uh, you know, feeding the hungry and homeless as one of those examples of there is almost certainly for some very long period of time going to be people that just need emergency food supplies. We are probably not going to eliminate the need for that for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody comes up with that and they come up with a logic model that shows it and great, you know, they'll probably get funded. That would be great if you could completely eliminate hunger. But probably there's going to be some need for somebody to just be there meeting that. And maybe you don't see as much in the long-term change thing. But boy, a lot of everybody else, there are things we could be doing to really have some long-term impact. Mm-hmm. And identifying that is part of that theory of change process. You know, why our work? towards that. Do you, um, and again, before we maybe jump into the Bennett stuff, could you talk a little bit about how you see that um, uh, developing a theory of change within a charity as, as a component of how you figure out evaluation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so theory of change is is a little different than a logic model. Um, the, most, the most common logic model is this Kellogg's logic model because they did a really good job pushing it out and mm-hmm. kind of making it simple. Um, uh, or concise uh, for people to be able to understand. Um, And a logic model has a whole bunch of different types of things on it. So um, uh, a logic model starts with the inputs. What are you giving to the program? Do you have money? Do you have staff? Do you have other resources that are, are going to go into the program to make sure that it can happen? Um, Then you talk about the activities that you're doing. You're going to use those resources to do what? Um, and then you talk about what you produce, your outputs. So those activity, we, we did an education program and we did it 10 times. So that would be an output. Those are all different types of things. Um, a theory of change, uh, which I do a lot of work in also, um, starts uh, with all the same thing in it. And it, it, a theory of change is entirely made out of outcomes. And so instead of talking about what are we putting in, what are we doing, what are we getting out of it, a theory of change says, what are all the outcomes that are going to be necessary and in what order to achieve what we're hoping to achieve? And then afterwards, you think about the programs and the activities and the inputs and all that stuff. Um, They're all part of the same kind of family of program theory. What is the theory of our program? but uh, they have a little bit uh, different um, kind of flavor in how they go about that. And I think it's important to identify that um, any one mission may have several different opportunities to create that change. So your theory mm-hmm. could be, uh, you know, if we're talking about that idea of uh, um, alleviating hunger, um, that it's really a jobs problem. So, you know, you know, we're going to go attack the jobs end of thing, or mm-hmm. it might be an education problem. We're going to attack the education end of things. Your individual charity is going to have its theory of, we think this is the way to attack this need, but probably there's 
there's more than one way to solve that. So as you develop your theory, um, you have to be kind of thinking to yourselves, maybe even the way that we've been doing it in the past isn't the best way to do this. Now that we're thinking of all these outcomes and the sequential change that we want to see, that maybe the um, outputs we're generating from the inputs that we have available isn't the best way to actually generate that change, which is another reason to do this exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of these uh, logic model, theory of change, um, any of these things in this family really have a, a they have a, a number of different purposes inside an organization. And so one of them is to give you a way to think through, to just think better about how this stuff all works together. Are we putting in the right inputs to get the outputs that we want? Are the outputs going to be sufficient to get the outcomes that we want? So it helps you kind of think this through um, yourself in order to uh, do either evaluation um, or you could be doing it to design your program from the beginning. And ideally, evaluation and program design are always tied. You're, you're doing evaluation so that you're learning and improving your program. You're improving your program, and then you're evaluating it. And it's this iterative cycle um, within an organization. Um, but I think another reason to do uh, a logic model, theory of change, any of this kind of stuff, um, is, uh, is as a part of what I would call case making for an organization. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, when you're making your case for the, the, the worth of your organization, the value of your organization, if you're a public you know, serving organization, the public good um, of your organization, what you're doing, uh, you need to have two things. So you need to have the argument of why would this even work? So your argument, your explanation of what you're doing uh, should make sense uh, and people should be able to follow it and uh, you should be able to explain it, right? Mm -hmm. If you can't do that, then um, you're going to lose a lot of people right away. Then the second part of case making is what is the evidence that backs up our argument? And so for a lot of uh, nonprofits, organizations, um, getting to the point where they have their argument well-defined is enough. Um, right. You know, one of the things, there's this eternal um, uh, argument about what is the role of data in donor decisions. Um, and uh, my read on the, the, the conversation about this is that individual donors are not as swayed by data as they are by other things that are more important to them. So, for example, um, personal connection, the story, um, and also, does this make sense? Uh, for a lot of people, having an explanation about why something would have an impact and it makes sense is enough. Um, and so uh, get, people just fit, completing their logic model, their theory of change, whatever kind of program theory they're doing, can can help them in a lot of different ways. I know, Steve, you do communications. Mm -hmm. um, having a logic model is incredibly helpful for communications right. uh, because you're identifying all the different pieces of the things you need to talk about uh, when you communicate about your program. Um, and then, uh, so that would be the argument side of your case making. Uh, and then in the evidence side, uh, I do a lot of evaluation work. Now that you have your argument, now you can start uh, providing evidence on uh, why you know that it's true. Um, and so uh, we, I think a common, a common uh, 
misperception about filling out a logic model is that you know a logic model has um, you have to get to outcomes at some point. You're mm-hmm. going to talk about what are the outcomes of what we're doing. And uh, Kellogg's, for instance, Kellogg's logic model talks about short-term outcomes, medium-term outcomes, long-term outcomes. And I think there's a perception that when you fill in those boxes, that means you are holding yourself accountable Mm -hmm. to achieving those outcomes. Well, yes and no. First of all, you want to be able to make the full case for why your program does have outcomes. And so uh, I think that no matter what the size of your organization, the scope of uh, your programs, if you're small, if you're big, I think that everybody who's doing that program believes that there is a long-term outcome, that there is a societal impact of some kind Mm -hmm. of them doing that work. Otherwise, why would you do it, right? Right. But um, their ability to measure that impact is a different question. And so for many, um, you know, especially small nonprofits, doing the, doing the logic model and filling out uh, all of those outcomes provides a lot of good evidence for, or argument for why do we think this has an impact and what do we hope that it is um, that provides the full story of their program. Then when you're going into the evidence with a logic model, you typically start at the beginning and you start evaluating each step along the way. Mm-hmm. Are you putting in the inputs that you said you would put in? Are the activities happening in the way that you said they would? Because if anything at the beginning isn't happening, then the stuff at the end isn't going to be happening. Um, And so in that way, it gives you a process and a framework for doing evaluation that can be more responsible to the resources uh, that you have, no matter what they are. I really appreciate everything that you um, were asking charities to think about in this piece. And I want to just sort of uh, add the... Um, the framework of, of uh, logos, pathos, ethos uh, in this conversation about how we communicate these things, that there's varying degrees of those mixes that really impact people believing in your work and what's going on. So certainly ethos is the, the, the starting point. If, if you have a potential supporter out there who is not um, ethically aligned with the work that you're doing, there is no measure of logic and yeah. and pathos <laughs> that you can bring to the table, right? I don't really care um, what kind of communication I get from the National Rifle Association. I am ethically opposed to their mission. I will not be supporting them, mm-hmm. period. There's no anywhere further to go. But of course, most charities, most people you know, are okay with the mission work. They, they're ethically aligned. That's fine. Um, so that pathos piece that you sort of addressed where there's a feeling about it. They're connected to a person. They, they understand a story, whatever. That's a really important thing for individuals. But another component is, is that logos. So literally the logic of mm-hmm. it. How are you the ones that can help solve that problem? Because probably there is some other nonprofit out there that is also trying to get at the, the long-term change that you're looking to get at. So if you can do all of those elements well, you can talk about them within these frameworks. I think that they're not, you know, because we call it a logic model doesn't mean that you can't also be measuring the impact of people's um, ethical connection to your work and measuring the impact of that that feeling thing about how they are. They can all be measured as things that, that fit into a larger story. And it, this is starting to kind of now guide us into the, the question about the Bennett's thing, because several of the charities that I've worked with over the years go, well, you can't measure what we do. Mm-hmm. 
you know, our stuff is somehow different or whatever. Uh, and you mentioned at the beginning that you work with uh, um, like organizations, uh, art museums and uh, libraries, things that are intended to probably be uh, part of the community for, for forever uh, and make it an impact on a community. But it is one of those things where it's harder for them to say, well, we served X number of mm -hmm. meals or we, you know, uh, educated uh, people in a, a specific way. Here's where some of the stuff that is within this Bennett's framework helped fill into those organizations that feel like the old logic model version didn't speak to them as much. So can you tell me a little bit about um, Bennett's hierarchy, uh, how you use this particular tool in this range of tools that you've been talking about? Yeah. So uh, Bennett's hierarchy is just a, a, a particular flavor of logic models. Um, and it's not new. Uh, Claude Bennett wrote an article about this uh, in 1975. Um, and that's kind of where this came from. Uh, and he was building on other people's work uh, that was about how to explain the, the program theory of training programs, um, educational programs. And so uh, this uh, Bennett's hierarchy logic model um, is specifically focused on explaining the theory of programs that are trying to provide education or information um, so that people change in mm -hmm. some way. They change what they do. Uh, and so this is, this is a huge range of uh, nonprofit programs that would fit into this category. Um, I came across uh, this idea of Bennett's uh, hierarchy um, in my work uh, previously when I worked at an informal education uh, institution um, because it is, it's very helpful in thinking about the different types of things that are necessary in an educational or information uh, program uh, to bring about some kind of practice change, having people do something differently um, afterwards. Uh, and I wrote a blog article about this uh, on my website, um, and that's how Steve uh, right. found out about this. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not a new idea, um, but I think it's a really Im important and useful idea. I think it stood the test of time. Uh, and I wanted to write, I wanted to share this more broadly with people because I just end up using it all the time. Mm -hmm. I just like it. Uh, and I thought, why? It's always a surprise to people when, to my clients, when I bring it up. Uh, and I thought, why? It shouldn't be. <laughs> it's it's easy to use. It's super helpful, uh, and it, um, it 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 provides more direction uh, to uh, practitioners who are doing educational programs than something like a, a Kellogg's model. Um, uh, uh, logic model does. Um, so uh, that's why I really like it. And the, the reason uh, that it's a little bit different um, than Kellogg is because it goes into more detail about what the short-term outcomes uh, that an educational program uh, should be thinking about. What are those short-term outcomes? Um, and the most kind of uh, unique part about Bennett's hierarchy uh, logic model is uh, the definition um, of the things that are needed to, to get to a practice change, to get people to change something about what they do. And so he uh, lays out four different um, areas of short-term outcomes that you want to be paying attention to. And so the four areas are uh, knowledge. Knowledge, what do people know? When they leave your program, they should have gained some kind of knowledge. 
the second one is attitude. How do people feel? They should leave your program feeling something different about themselves, about the topic, about, um, uh, about you as an institution, perhaps. The third one is skills. They should leave knowing how to do something, being able to do something differently. They need to have gained some kind of skill. Uh, and then the fourth one is aspiration. They should leave feeling basically inspired uh, to make a change. They want to uh, make a change in the future. And so Bennett calls this KASA, knowledge, attitude, skills, aspiration. Uh, and this is where when I'm working with clients, I'm, we mostly focus our time yeah. is what are these things? Um, what are the different types of knowledge you want them to learn? What are the different kinds of attitudes you want them to feel, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, when they leave your program? Uh, because I'm typically doing evaluation work. This program is going to, the program I'm working with is going to do some kind of post-program survey, some kind of evaluation after the program. And so this is, these ideas are very helpful in identifying what are the important things to ask about, um, things that can help us guide the questions that we want to ask uh, on the survey. And I think really helps uh, open the opportunity for evaluation and, and having conversations outside of people that are already involved in different ways for different charities that might have felt like um, a defined end goal is too hard for us to wrap around, right? Um, if you're out there trying to find a cure for breast cancer, you, you either find the cure or you're working on it. And, you know, there's, there's steps along the way and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. But there are some charities out there where... There is a defined end state where when we get to it, in theory, you know, mission accomplished, we wrap up and we go home. But many things that are out there that are kind of creating this ongoing process within people um, are not going to be, you know, nicely wrapped up with a we have achieved change. Uh, you know, the long term impact is here now, mm -hmm. but rather we're constantly evolving that around the humans that are engaged in it and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. And being able to still say you can look towards the idea of aspiration as a measurable thing that you're working on and, and making part of your evaluation. And it doesn't have to be that there is no more cancer, but rather that the people that you're working with have decided to do something differently in their lives mm -hmm. as a result of your intervention, whatever your program thing may be. And that's, I think, opens this conversation of uh, efficacy and, and how do we know that we're accomplishing something and all the rest of it to a much wider range of charities who might otherwise shut this tool out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> I, I think I think any organization, no matter what your size, has the ability to do a post-program survey. Like that mm -hmm. is a very accessible um, kind of evaluation to do. It's not expensive. Um, it probably has the most bang for your buck uh, with uh, improving your program. Asking people about the program after they do it can help you improve your program. And then what Bennett's, what any logic model does, but especially Bennett's in this case, um, is that it, it's, it, it gives you the ability to say, if we're having, if we're finding evidence for these knowledge, attitude, skill, aspiration outcomes, then we know that that is a stepping stone along the way to a bigger outcome. Mm -hmm. And as an, as an organization, you could say, we don't have the money to evaluate that outcome right now. We believe it's happening. You know, 
all of the, the, the body of research and, and best practices in the field that we are a part of says that this is important on, in, in that, just uh, a step in the right direction. Um, but we just can't do it right now. You know, please, mm-hmm. please give us money and we'd, we would love to. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, it, it puts what you're able to uh, evaluate into a bigger framework, into a bigger story about what the, um, uh, what the outcomes of your work are. Uh, and then, you know, uh, hopefully after a couple of years, the program's going great. You've identified that, yes, people really are having the outcomes that we, we want them to have because of our program. Um, now let's focus some evaluation money a little bit further down the, the, the program theory. Let's start looking at medium-term outcomes. Let's follow up with people and see if they actually did make a change um, because that would strengthen the case for why um, uh, uh, our our program is valuable. Um, so putting putting a value putting your program and putting a, a valuation uh, into some kind of logic model frame puts it into this into this bigger picture and gives you a, a, a process um, uh, that you can just kind of work on over time and build your case uh, for your for your uh, for your impact. Um, along the way, uh, you know, I always hope that people are using evaluation for improvement primarily, right? Um, because that's what helps helps you as an organization rather than just doing evaluation to to try to you know get money or, or whatever. Um, but uh, but this is why if you work with an evaluator, they often ask you if you have a logic model or. Um, or want to create one with you is because it helps guide all that work. What, with the hope that if you do learn somewhere along the way that you're not having the um, changes that you want to see, that uh, um, that there's an opportunity to then be iterative. As you said, mm-hmm. there's something wrong with our assumptions, our model. Um, often, of course, that's also changes in the external environment, um, which are you know huge to kind of uh, take a look at. There are charities that I work with that um, serve uh, new American communities uh, here in Minnesota that are having dramatically reduced numbers because the president decided to shut the borders, right? Well, it's not that they suddenly stopped serving people, but the external factors really impacted their ability to mm-hmm. um, serve those newer folks that are coming into our area. Uh, so when they look at, the, at um, their evaluation process, they have to say, well, there are external things that we can't control, but we have to adapt to. When they happen, we still have to look at that and change. But there are the reasons to do some of these evaluations to go, if it isn't some big external change that we can't control or whatever, we maybe had a wrong assumption. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a uh, um, a general um, fear of acknowledging, like, oh, we were wrong. We didn't, we, we thought we had a really good idea. Mm-hmm. We tested it. It turned out it isn't having that kind of impact. And I would challenge every charity listening to think um, this is an opportunity to really engage a community in finding a better solution. And they will probably come to the table with some dollars if you're honest and upfront and you don't run from it and all the rest of it. But I think throwing your resources after something because, well, that's the way we've always done it, even if the evaluation works as it's not having the impact you want to have, mm-hmm. is certainly not something that um, is is going to be sustainable for any charity in the long run. Mm-hmm. So how do you talk to people about the iterative process of learning from what your evaluation tells you? That if the evaluation is as expected, you can try to grow or move. But what if it's not? How do you mm-hmm. reimagine the work? Yeah. Um, the culture of evaluation has been growing uh, over the years in the nonprofit sector. 
Um, and uh, there's been it's been a little bit of a roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. There's been ups and downs. Uh, there's been you know, and there's multiple players involved. There's the there's the um, nonprofits doing work. There's people funding that work. Everyone has a little bit different expectation about what evaluation is and yeah. who should be paying for it and all this kind of stuff. Um, all for the most part, uh, we try to encourage organizations to do their own evaluation for their own good. Um, because uh, evaluation and planning are two sides of the same coin. Planning is about uh, looking forward and thinking about what do we want to achieve, and evaluation is about looking backwards and saying, did we achieve what we wanted to? Um, And then the act of planning is about making changes in order to improve your impact. Um, And so uh, we... When we work with a with an organization, um, we're often trying to come in as kind of like evaluation coaches yeah. uh, to help them think about what is our cycle of planning and improvement. And this is not not like we invented this. There's all sorts of continuous improvement kind of models out there. Um, you could probably you know throw a stone and hit ten of them. <laughs> uh, and it, it, one of my favorite pieces of research. This was about board governance. They looked at um, different board models and and whether uh, you know different board models were better than other ones. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, this was particularly about boards, but I just apply it to everything in life. Um, they found that uh, any model worked better than no model, and right. no model worked better than any other one. And it's kind of the same with some of this evaluation stuff. The most important thing is to do it. It doesn't matter if you're using a particular tool over another tool. There's no one right way to do it. The important thing is that you find a way to in- in- include evaluative thinking, iterative improvement uh, into your organization uh, in a way that makes sense for you and is a fit, is a cultural fit so that it continues. If it doesn't fit in your organization, then people will stop doing it. Yeah. Um, and so, again, I always encourage uh, nonprofits to make a shift um, from thinking about evaluation as something that they're required to do uh, because of funds they've received, usually because of funds they've received, mm-hmm. um, to something that they want to do because it has a mission impact. It helps them have a better impact um, in what they're doing. And nonprofits are always working at the edge of, of their capacity. Um, they're working as efficiently as they can, and it's hard to uh, find time to look at information, reflect on what it means, and think about what comes next. Uh, but that's really the critical action that's necessary um, for nonprofits to, to be improving um, uh, in their work. And when people have the time to do it, they always like doing it and yeah. they always think it's beneficial. Yeah, agreed. And and it is always the challenge to encourage them to spend the time slash money. Um, mm-hmm. Often those are the same thing for yeah. many charities uh, <laughs> to go ahead and be engaged in this work and not to um, go, well, it's really a good idea. We want to do that. As soon as I finish spending all of my available resources on this other mission <laughs> thing, <clears throat> I'm going to come back and, and do that. And of course, if you just push it off and push it off, it's uh, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it becomes harder and harder, I think, to get back to. Yeah, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about um, the visual process that Bennett's hierarchy kind of helps envision because you, you write in your blog post that it's um, 
thinking instead of more of this uh, left to right continuum that maybe was people used to seeing in the in the more Kellogg model. This is more of a a stair step um, um, growing out of evolutionary mm. thing. Not like you've left the inputs behind and now you're at outputs, but rather the you're kind of building upon. And that visual I think can really help people think about getting to these practice change areas, um, but um, thinking of it just just slightly differently, or at least visually presenting it slightly differently. And and before I ask you to respond, I'll um, uh, find some visuals to put on the show notes here so that people can do this, because of course, in audio, we can't show you this, but <laughs> but visually, it is very helpful, I think, to look at this a little bit differently mm-hmm. from just, um, you start at A and you are done at B, but rather you've got this um, more kind of concentric circle growing thing that you've put out that uh, helps me anyway mm-hmm. frame it better. Yeah. So um, uh, when Bennett wrote his article about this, um, he, he calls it a hierarchy. Uh, and um, he presented it that each of the steps um, in this logic, mo- in his logic model framework are literal steps. Like mm-hmm. he shows them on a staircase, you're climbing the staircase as you move up. And the, the reason why this is, you could present Kellogg model the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not drastically different. Uh, Bennett's is just a little bit more focused on educational uh, engagement. Um, but uh, the reason he presents it as a staircase uh, is because as you climb the staircase, basically, as you start evaluating each of the steps in the staircase, you are increasing the evidence of the the value of your program. And so evaluating any step on the staircase is valuable, Mm -hmm. but it it, it provides a different level of evidence for the impact of your your program. And so, uh, again, you start at the bottom. So you would evaluate whether you are putting in the inputs that you that are needed, uh, the time, money, uh, resources that are needed to do the program. Uh, and if you find that you are putting in the inputs, then, okay, cool, let's climb to the next step. If you're not putting in the inputs necessary, then, you know, nothing else is really going to happen. So you should stop evaluating and you should start trying to figure out how are we going to get the resources we need mm-hmm. in order to actually do the program that we want to do. And again, you'd keep moving up. So when you get to the the second step is activities. Are we actually doing the activities that are going to be necessary to have the outcomes that we want? So you'd keep climbing. You'd keep evaluating as you go up. So as you go up, um, you are building your evaluation case. Um, you're saying the, the higher up we get on these stairs, the more impact we know we're having. Um, and but the other part that uh, Bennett, I really like that he says this in his article, is that as you climb the staircase, it gets harder to climb each step mm-hmm. as you go up. It's a lot easier to look at: Are we providing the programs that we said we would provide, rather than are we having the long-term impact uh, that we think we do have? And so your your the case for your your program grows as you climb the staircase, but the difficulty of evaluating it also grows as you climb the staircase. Um, and one of the one of the uh, I understand this tendency, but but it I think it's a mistake that nonprofits do is they jump right to impact. Um, they don't 
because they want to show impact mm-hmm. in order to um, you know garner funds, make you know make the strongest case they can, they jump right there. But then they haven't uh, done a done usually a, a sufficient job evaluating the other steps along the way, and so now they're trying to evaluate the hardest thing first without knowing that all the pieces are in place in order to to actually for that impact to be able to happen and so when they get results back maybe they get good results back that'd be great um maybe they get results back they didn't expect and now it's like okay what are what are you gonna do because you didn't there's all sorts of things that could be that could be contributing to this um this result and you don't know what it is because you haven't evaluated the the steps along the way you haven't climbed the whole staircase kind of in sequence. Right. And I think um, always important, and as I talk to folks about these concepts, to um, not let the perfect be the enemy of the good here. That um, I, I think sometimes we think about um, what we know about statistical analysis and go, well, I'm, I'm not going to get to a 95% confidence level without doing this extremely expensive process. And anybody that wants to hear more about that, I'll refer you back to the uh, podcast recording we did with um, the uh, APM Research Lab folks with Craig Helmstetter. Um, But it isn't to say that you are going to have every one of those steps perfect before you can begin thinking about the next one. But sequentially, again, thinking, what have we done in those areas? Is is it enough to give us some insight and and, places to go and all the rest of it rather than we've just kind of skipped it all together? So I also want to... you know, thinking about this in terms of a hierarchy, it, it of course, uh, naturally for those of us, you know, liberal arts students that remember um, Maslow, you know, this idea of the self-actualization stage um, being this, you know, final kind of product. Uh, I, I don't think anybody believes that you get to self-actualization when you have intended to food and shelter and, you know, all these other pieces. So it, the way that you've got it um, illustrated in your blog post, I think, really does help kind of visualize that a little mm-hmm. bit more. Like you can't just kind of cut to the end. You really do have to have foundationally thought about anyway mm-hmm. some of these other things. Yeah, I, I want to comment on that. That uh, I like think about Maslow as a good uh, analogy to this. Um, but you're... You're also right. I was talking with a client yesterday uh, who's in, who is rolling out a new program. It's a big program, and it it um, assumes a lot of cultural change at their organization mm-hmm. in order to do it. Um, and uh, they uh, want to be looking at impact because this is a funded program, um, but they have never done it before. Um, and so we were having a, a nuanced conversation about. Well, we, we need to make sure that implementation of this program is happening. So let's focus evaluation resources on that. Because if implementation is not happening, then we're not going to get any impact, right. right? But, like, we can also look at impact, too. Because you're going to be doing pilot programs, there's a lot of opportunity to also look at impact in certain ways. And so let's focus, you know, what is the, what is the split? Are we doing 50% on like whether you're doing implementation, are you doing 50% on the impact, but how do we balance these two things in a way uh, that is strategic um, so that we're getting the, the best information we can with the resources that we have uh, for doing evaluation. Um, and that's, that's, a hard, that's, a hard conver- that's a hard thing to figure out. Um, but again, you don't, you don't have to just be doing one thing at a time when you're evaluating, but you want to be strategic about the purpose of your evaluation um, and what you're going to get out of it so that when it's over, 
you have information that you can use to make decisions, to make improvements, to make your case. You have the right information in the end. Right. And that the goal isn't to um, just measure stuff that um, that validates what we wanted it to be. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think that that's an important part of looking at what kind of external measurements and tools can we be using that aren't necessarily ours, but that do help us understand uh, maybe we did all of the right interventions and there was a 2008 Great Recession that just destroyed everything we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. So the, the the ultimate impact didn't happen, even though all of our steps went the right way. Mm-hmm. If I structure an evaluation program that says, well, my steps were done right, so therefore I'm successful, I'm like, well... I mean, yes, question mark, but not really. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's good to kind of keep that in mind as people look at these different tools. Well, we're starting to run a little low on time. And uh, what most excited me about seeing this uh, Bennett's hierarchy idea is this um, um, the CASA piece of it, the knowledge, attitude, skills, aspirations um, thing, to really measure where people are in the process and not where they might eventually sort of be self-actualized to mm-hmm. and transition to nirvana 30 mm-hmm. years down the line and all the rest of it, but rather um, are we incrementally helping people get to pieces, um, which may be different from what folks envisioned in more traditional logic models as really hard points of, well, your income is up. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, your uh, educational attainment hit X. So it's a measurable, you know, you now have a GED and you didn't before. Boom, I have a mm-hmm. measurable point. Um, that CASA thing is um, is more nuanced, but I think tells more interesting story. And I can see why you said earlier that you spend more time with that. Do you also then kind of try to emphasize that in the evaluation process too, in, in addition to those inputs pieces and all those other things? Yeah, exactly. Um, usually... Uh, that's why we're doing it is because yeah. we're literally trying to figure out what's, what do we want to ask about on the post-program survey that is meaningful, important, and impactful um, so that we can make our case that this is working. Uh, and so thinking through what are the different – there's a tendency in educational programs, programs that are designed to provide information, to only focus on knowledge. Mm-hmm. But knowledge is not enough feel like I'm getting philosophical here. Knowledge is not enough to produce change, right? Like we have, I learn all sorts of things every single day that could help me in my life that I don't ever act on, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) Um, And so there are, we know that there are other components that are necessary to produce change. And in this Bennett's hierarchy, he says they're attitude, skills, and aspirations. We have to feel differently about ourselves. We have to know how to do something different and we have to aspire to make a change. Um, And so by, uh, by uh, what I, what I actually do with clients is I say, okay, in knowledge, what are the different things we want them to know? What are the different things we want them to feel? What are the different things we want them to know how to do? Uh, and wh- how do we, what do we, what would, what would show us that they aspire to change? And then we ask about those things. Um, so we're actually coming up with, I would call them indicators mm-hmm. um, of those outcomes. Uh, and that's what we're asking about uh, in, the, in the survey. Um, typically it's, you know, some kind of rating scale or, or something, whatever makes sense. Um, but the idea is to get a sense of, are people experiencing these important steps on the way towards the practice change that we actually want? And so um, an educational program would have to also define what that practice change is. Um, But uh, in the post-program survey, 
whether it's a five-minute program where you're talking to someone for five minutes at a museum or whether it's an hour-long presentation of a month-long class, uh, we can all come up with some of these, some indicators that these things are changing. Yeah, and I want to take this outside of the traditional C3 charity and just talk for a moment about other nonprofits, uh, um, C4 political action, those sorts of things where um, these cost of things are actually probably much more what folks are trying to get to than you know any of the specific outputs that they may have done. Um, but having served on the board of directors at, um, at Outfront Minnesota um, while we were going through um, the marriage equality campaign, I think we, we found out that um, it is possible for people to um, gain knowledge and change attitudes uh, and whatnot before the aspiration to want that change has mm, come. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that's a, um, and it becomes a little flipped in the causal relationship where because the knowledge and, and uh, attitudes have changed, the aspiration starts to show up rather yeah. than like I have to have the aspiration yeah. before I'm willing to acquire the knowledge and change the attitudes and whatnot. Yeah. I think if we look at that particular example um, that um, we got a um, legal marriage equality in the state of Minnesota and shortly after nationwide. And now um, many, many, many more people's attitudes about that have changed pretty dramatically because it's now the way that the life works and it's okay and people have accepted mm -hmm. it. And now there's an, a, a different level of, well, I do, I, maybe I didn't want that change, but it's here and now I'm okay with it. And um, that's a whole nother way of thinking about this whole CASA end of it too, that those aren't necessarily sequential, um, that, that right. CASA piece. I mean, that they they work together nicely, yep, but you don't together. have to to say this first and then that, but rather these mm -hmm. kind of concurrently or, or somehow evolve over time. Yeah, you might, as a participant, you might come to a program with a lot of aspiration. Right. You're there because you want to make a change, yeah. and you really need to know how. Um, you might be coming for a completely different reason. You might be mandated to come. Right. Um, and <laughs> right. Good point. Uh, all of these, you know, it may be that um, you make, as an individual, you make gains in some of these uh, areas and not in others. We're not making a judgment call about which is most important for you as an individual. We just want to know that as a program, it's promoting yeah. these types of things because they're all important. They're all important in different ways uh, for um, making a change uh, in the future. Um, and uh, we've talked a lot about the KASA and, and doing post-program surveys, things like that. Um, in the blog post, I also talk a little bit about evaluating these medium-term outcomes, which is practice change. Did you actually make a change? And I just wanted to say, too, that even for small nonprofits I work with, it's typically reasonable for them to evaluate medium-term outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, because if, if you have a captive audience at some kind of educational informational program, if you can collect any kind of contact information from them, you can follow up with a very focused survey in, in, in three months that says, hey, like, did you actually do something different because of this? Did you change right. what you've done? And, and usually it's, it's you're looking for small steps. Again, you're looking for an indicator that something stuck with them. But that is powerful evidence uh, that your program is having an impact. Um, and I think it's more accessible than, than a lot of programs think. I, I could ask you several more questions. We are really out of time, though, so I just want to wrap by, first of all, thanking you for taking yeah. the time because this is important and, and really in, interesting and exciting work. So uh, where uh, or how is the best way for people to stay in touch with what Aurora is doing? Yeah, so um, Aurora Consulting, uh, we're in uh, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, 
And our website is auroraconsult.com. And we also have a Facebook page, Twitter account. We got all the stuff, all the, all the things. Uh, and we're active on it. And um, I encourage you to take a look at our uh, resources page on our website. Uh, we really try to put out things that are going to be useful for people, right. actual tools, actual things that you can just use um, to make a difference. So we will start by linking to this particular blog post because, of course, it's the um, point there, but much more at the website. So Al Anka, principal at Aurora Consulting, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve.